if it wasn't the wolf doing it, someone was going to do it. So like, to me, it was just a matter of when, not if. And yeah, I think the goal is just to let buyers have a little bit more insight before deciding that they have to jump into some sales process where maybe they're getting hit with tons of phone calls and emails while working a day job. And they're still trying to learn about the 4,000 plus franchise brands that are out there. Like from a buying perspective, it felt broken. And I just felt that every day when I was working in Fran Dev, cause I'm on the phone with these people and I could just hear the frustration in their voice. Some would let me know about it directly. And that was always fun. Yeah, so that's just part of the goal. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership, allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you. All right, well, this is going to be a fun episode. What's going on, Christian? How's it going, Dan? Excited to be here. Me too. I'm really pumped about this episode. If you're a listener and you have been in business or sales at any point in your life, I'm sure you've seen the movie The Wolf of Wall Street. It's one of my favorite movies. And so it's pretty cool to have the guy that this movie was inspired by. Just kidding. But The Wolf of Franchise is on. What's going on, man? Good to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the franchise industry. Give us your background a little bit. Yeah. So I worked in franchise development at a Frandev firm for a few years. And we worked with a bunch of different brands in different industries. So that was kind of the way I cut my teeth in the franchise world. You know, got a good feel for emerging franchises, as well as just met, right, a bunch of multi-unit franchise owners and multi-brand franchise owners. And I kind of noticed that there's a lot of franchisees who are doing you know, very well for themselves. And it was a path to wealth that I had never considered. Like I remember first multi-unit franchisee I heard of was like, you know, first week on the job and one of my coworkers was just like, like, oh yeah, that guy owns like 25 guys and he's rich. And I was like, wait, you can just do that? Buy franchises and make money? And then obviously there's this whole world of people and that's what they do, right? They just build up these portfolios. And anyway, I was on Twitter at the time not really doing anything with it, but just kind of watching. And there's a lot of people like sharing cool info there. And uh, no one was talking about franchises. And I was just like, you know, it's obviously not the path for everyone, but I thought it was pretty cool and unique. So I was just, I just started talking about it. Decided to brand myself the Wolf of Franchises, which we can get into if you want. But my Twitter account's taken off and uh, I started a newsletter as well to kind of highlight the good emerging brands that are always coming out. And yeah, both have taken off. And at the moment, I'm doing that full time. So I'm out of the franchise development world. I'm more just building like this media brand around franchising. I like it. It's really funny because I had this misconception too before I was really super heavily involved in the franchise world. I had this misconception that you couldn't really become tremendously wealthy through franchising. You couldn't build a tremendous amount of wealth in doing it. I thought it was for the person that wanted to replace their job, maybe make 80 grand a year or something like that. Nothing super crazy, but they can be in business for themselves. Not super high highs, not super low lows, have a framework. I never thought that you could build tremendous wealth through it, but you absolutely can. And it's crazy that it just seems like such a well-kept secret that more people don't consider franchising as a path to wealth. They think, I'm going to invest in the stock market. I'm going to invest in real estate, private equity, whatever. But franchising really is a great path that a lot of people don't consider. And it sounds like you explored or exploited a really 
open area in terms of a media space. Yeah, I mean, I just think there's a bit of a stigma around it, right? Like, you know, people think about royalties and they feel like they're just doing something that's making somebody else rich. But I mean, the reality is you look at like these big multi-unit owners and it doesn't even have to be that big, but you know, like there's guys like Guillermo Perales, if you've heard of him, who owns right like 1,200 food franchises. Then you have Jamie Weeks, who owns 150 plus Orange Theories. And, you know, he did that in like a matter of six to seven years, which is just a ridiculous pace. But like, you don't even need that scale. I mean, like five locations of most brands is pretty solid cash flow. I saw like the playbook was the same with every franchisee I saw, whether they were an Orange Theory owner or the owner of like, I remember working with some Rebath, if you've heard of that franchise, like they do like plumbing fixtures and stuff like that. The playbook was the same. It was get into a brand, buy multiple locations after you've secured a large territory. And then they either live off that cash flow or they end up selling, you know, upstream, maybe to a PE firm, to a bigger franchisee, whatever. And then you have, you know, a, a pretty solid pile of cash and a lot of them just do it all over again. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's definitely, I think, a slept on path in entrepreneurship. I love the probably accidental subtle plug to my new company there with the playbook references. So thank you. What's your company? Well, we're recording it now, but I recently, as I think we mentioned on, I talked to you on the last time we chatted, I exited you know my previous company that was lead gen and friend development, which we exited and Princeton Equity Group took majority ownership of that company. He took investment into that company. I moved on and started my new company. And it's actually, I'll say it now, since we're coming up with it, it's called Franchise Playbook. And everything about it is all about playbooks and creating the playbook. So right on. thank you for the plug. But I feel like you are trailblazing because franchising has been this dark little web of development people. And no offense, I'm one of them. So no offense to anyone listening that's in development. (laughs) (laughs) But like, we're trying to keep all the information to ourselves and you get on a call with us. And if you're a candidate, you know, it doesn't have to be that. And what you guys are doing is you're getting all the information out there where they can digest it at their own timeline instead of having to get it spoon fed through a development person. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, that's how I started as a development person. And I mean, I have a ton of respect for everyone in the industry. It's a tough job. The sales cycles are brutal. It's tough. So I respect the hell out of anyone in it. But I did kind of feel that way that it just felt really old school. It didn't necessarily feel transparent the whole time. And when we're dealing with multi-six-figure investments where certain people are considering dumping like 10 years of life savings into a franchise, I'm not saying that it was like, there's total unethical foul play going on, but it just didn't feel totally fair to the buyers. And my thought was just like, look, the trend of the internet has been every single industry has been revolutionized in some way or another. And it hadn't somehow happened in the franchise world. If it wasn't the wolf doing it, someone was going to do it. So like, to me, it was just a matter of when, not if. And yeah, I mean, I think the goal is just to let buyers have a little bit more insight before deciding that they have to jump into some sales process where maybe they're getting hit with tons of phone calls and emails while working a day job. And they're still trying to learn about the 4,000 plus franchise brands that are out there. Like from a buying perspective, it felt broken. And I just felt that every day when I was working in FranDev, because I'm on the phone with these people and I could just hear the frustration in their voice. Some would let me know about it directly. And that was always fun. 
yeah, so that's just part of the goal. Yeah, I mean, you can find FTDs online. There's different ways to come across that information, but those are big documents. It's a lot to read through. And even though they're supposed to be written in plain English, it's still written by a lawyer. So it's still not exactly plain English like it's supposed to be. And what I like about what you're doing is all of the information, all the key points, all the highlights, it's like a highlight reel in many ways for what the franchises are. If they have an Adam 19, you talk a little bit about that. What does the initial investment look like? What do they do? What kind of support and training do they provide? So you give them like a highlight reel, which I find very, very fascinating. And again, totally lacking in the industry. I appreciate that. And obviously, right, like the FTD, it's really important. It's not the be all and end all though. Like I think of it as like, you can use it as a signal of whether or not you want to dive deeper into a brand. But like purely judging off an FTD alone, you know, probably isn't the best decision. To me, it's always try to speak to franchisees, assuming they're at a stage where they already have franchisees open and operating. Like those are always going to be the best resource. So I try to make that come across too in the newsletter and just, you know, let people know like, hey, like this is just the signal. And like if certain industries or certain brands pique your interest and the numbers seem decent to you, then reach out and really enter due diligence. I mean, it's brutal. Like I'm just imagining, I learned so much about the franchise industry being in FranDev, but like, if you're just trying to do independent research, I mean, I couldn't imagine, even for like someone who's a very competent, smart person, it's just the things that are out there online, like it's really tough to navigate on your own. 100%. I mean, you think about it, it's master. Again, no disrespect to anyone, I'm one of them, but master presenter, salespeople, you know, they're presenting a brand. There's nothing wrong with that's business. You should present a brand. I'm sure anyone who represents a brand believes in it wholeheartedly, but at the end of the day, everyone has a way of presenting a business in a way that is appealing. I remember when I started out looking at franchises in 2014 or so, I was overwhelmed. I mean, first of all, you Google top franchises and there's so much that goes into what is at the top. And it, not necessarily because it's the most extraordinary brand. There's SEO involved, there's rankings, there's people that just, you know, are on portals and nothing wrong with those things. But how do you filter through 4,000 franchise brands? and 300 new ones a year on your own. It'd be impossible. Yeah, 100%. So I only highlight a brand if I think they have something decent going in the FTD and that requires an item 19. Like, just to your point, there's too many brands out there. So if I don't see something in an item 19, you know, if they don't disclose anything, I don't have the time even just to reach out to brands and be like, well, hey, like, how are things going? Or, you know, can you connect me with a franchisee? And I really think, especially for emerging brands, if you don't have an item 19, that's a red flag to me. Like, how are you expecting someone to shell out six figures of their hard-earned money, put themselves potentially at risk with a loan for your business? Like, if you're not even going to show numbers. And I obviously understand the regulatory side of things. And to me, it's just, I think the default should be to transparency. And that's why I'm happy with the way things are going with the newsletter as it grows, because it seems to be almost like rewarding, right? The brands that are being like, hey, here are the numbers we have. And, you know, at a minimum, especially if you have a few franchisees or, or any number of franchisees, really, like there should be no reason you can't show at least the average revenue per location, right? Because, you know, 90 plus percent of brands probably are charging a flat percentage-based royalty. So from that alone, if you know how much royalties are collecting from every franchisee, you should know how much revenue they made. It's kind of wild to me that there's no minimum standard of information that needs to be disclosed in an FCD. And it's kind of the wild west. And, you know, every brand picks some different way. And some will like 
you know, really make you jump through hoops and show like the average number of customers per month and the average ticket price, but they won't just tell you the average revenue. It's mind boggling to me. And I think over time it's all going to change, but like it is pretty wild, guys. I mean, franchising is like, I've been told by people that it feels like the way the car dealerships used to work in the 90s. But like it's 2022 and the people are saying we're stuck in the 90s. No doubt. I have a new consultant that I've been talking with and he's been looking at a lot of different FDDs. And one of the first places you go, especially as a newer franchise consultant, is the item 19. Is there money-making potential? Yeah. And he was getting frustrated because he said, there's no standardization here. There's no like minimum requirement. And for the lay person that has never looked at something like this before, how the heck do you make sense of an item 19? Because some brands will show like top third, middle third, bottom third. Sometimes we'll break it up into quarters. They'll show average and median sometimes in each. Sometimes we'll just show average revenue across the entire system. And then sometimes we'll disclose net profit and they'll use different terms. Yeah, the terms are brutal, you know. Net margin, gross margin, gross operating net, EBITDA, community adjusted EBITDA. You ever heard of that? Yeah, I've seen that one too. Yeah, I swear they're allowed to make up the financial terms. It's wild. It's so funny that you guys are saying this because I was just having this conversation with some people at the IFA and people think this contradicts what I'm about to say that I would believe this, but it's how I feel. And what I mean contradicts is it's obviously a challenge that would be presented to our businesses, at least Christian and mine, but I believe it's a necessary one, which is regulation. I mean, I think that's what we're kind of hinting at. I think we need regulation in franchising. I think it would push out the bad apples. I think it would raise the bar. I think it would create a standardization and we would all do better. Our clients would do better. Everyone would rise through this being standardized. It's crazy that you can have these plethora of terms for the same term keyword. Yeah, 100%. I think the standardization would just, it'll reward the franchises that are performing the best. And so naturally, the best ones will rise to the top. So yeah, I'm hoping that day comes at some point. Because for now, you know, I'm stuck searching through hundreds of FCDs to write about in a newsletter. And I mean, I'm pulling my hair out sometimes because it's just, you know, either nothing disclosed or a bunch of ridiculous things. And, you know, Christian, what you said too, like I see that a lot as well, where it's top third, middle third, or, you know, top quarter and they run through it all. But for me, look, I was in sales for my whole career till this whole Twitter and newsletter thing happened. So like I get the sales hustle and I respect it. But like at the same time, when you break it up into quartiles or whatever, there is some like sales finesse going on there where they know that like the kind of naive first time entrepreneur is going to think that they're going to end up in the top, which I'm not saying they're not, but like it's almost like a way to be a little bit misleading, but it's kind of a gray area. And like to me, I just like, look, this is too serious of an investment where we should be playing in that gray area with people's money. Like that shit can impact you for a while if you make the wrong decision. So yeah, to me, it's like, I don't know why the FTC just doesn't come up with some standard, but maybe we'll be on a podcast in another day celebrating that they did. Yeah, FTC, if you're listening, we want it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, what it'll do is it'll just give the consumer a lot more faith in the franchise industry. So I think more people would be willing to look at franchising if that stigma that you were talking about earlier, Wolf, wasn't there or was lessened. So I think that regulation would definitely help. Yeah. And the total interest in franchising would rise. You know, I'm not really on LinkedIn yet. I'm trying to get started there. But, you know, I have a decent following on Twitter. And I have people reach out to me just via DMs that'll say like, 
hey, like your content's really cool. These are like people in tech and like way different career paths, but they're like, yeah, I thought about getting into franchises, but they're just like, yeah, I gave up after researching it for like a few weeks because it was just a shit show. And like, that's a loss for the industry as a whole, right? Like there's concepts that could have had franchisees and these are like sophisticated operators with capital, you know, who are interested in owning a business, but because they work at some big tech company, you know, they're not trying to like start their own coffee shop from scratch, right? Or their own pizza joint or their own gym. Like they're totally fine paying the royalties. They're just trying to find the quickest way to get to the top brands, but it's really impossible because you end up on a franchise directory that hasn't been updated since 2003. Very true. Shots fired at the portals. (laughs) (laughs) If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button. And make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. I think the time investment is the new earnings claim of is 2022's version of earnings claims. What I mean by that is every franchise says semi-absentee, five hours a week. You're not going to have to work at all. And listen, if you've got a tremendous amount of money to put towards something, maybe you can work that minimal amount of time. I don't know. I was running a multi-million dollar business with almost 100 contractors and employees. If you counted everyone up, And I don't think it was semi-absentee at all. I mean, maybe I wasn't in the day-to-day, but I was certainly dealing with calls and problems and I would never trade it for anything. It's Business ownership is amazing, but I think that there should be a regulation on that too. Some type of like check-in, like, hey, how many hours are your owners actually working in the business? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And I agree, kind of just like the general, let's call it ad copy from franchise. It's all very similar, you know, You can be your own boss with our brand. I see that on seven out of 10 websites, which obviously it's true. But yeah, I also think just on that, like semi-absentee stuff, it kind of misses the emotional side of owning a business where sure, like you could theoretically, if you're opening your first, you know, brick and mortar franchise, you could have someone else like manage construction and a grand opening. But the reality is if you're like the majority equity partner and it's the majority of your capital on the line, like, I don't know. I invested in crypto and I got to experience emotional volatile swings. So like, I'm just imagining if someone's capital is on the line, are you really going to be able to just work your day job like, and not be wanting to actively be involved in the business that's about to open? So yeah, I just think like that's something that, again, first-time entrepreneurs might not think about and then they might not realize it till they're too late and they've already signed the papers. So yeah, there's a lot of things that can change, but Ultimately, I think it would just start like with what we said, right? If there is some more regulation and standardization, the more that the best brands can be visible to new entrants, like the less bad things that'll happen naturally. Yeah. With semi-absentee, I think what a lot of people fail to realize too is that down the road after years of building your business, could it get to the point where it's like 15, 20 hours a week? Yeah, sure. I mean, you can absolutely do that through scale once the infrastructure is built. You have your leadership and management team. That's helping to run a lot of things, but you're still involved to some degree. And, that, and you're not doing that from the outset, especially if you're in a brick and mortar concept where there's construction. Construction is so much more intensive than a lot of people think, you know, from finding the location that fits the parameters for the brand to negotiating the lease to everything else, you know, getting the thing built out. I mean, it's a lot of work. And again, like you said, with all that capital invested, you need to be on that and paying attention. Someone once said this to me and it, really changed my perspective. I'm using this as an example, but don't get someone for $50,000 a year to run your million dollar a year business, right? Like you're going to trust someone for 
you know, not a ton of money to run your entire livelihood. Like we brought on our director of ops and we were paying a good amount of money because you get what you pay for. Typically, the market will pay what someone's worth. So, you know, if you are going to do a franchise and want to put management behind it, maybe don't buy three or five units of something and instead buy one or two and take that extra capital and put it towards people. But I think people have trouble paying what the real dollar amounts of people are worth. I mean, would you work hard for $60,000 a year? Probably not. You know, it's like you got to pay Hell people no. what they need to be happy and succeed. Yeah, p- people can be, you know, penny wise and dollar foolish, right? They save a few bucks in the short run, but in the long run, it's going to cost them far more. And yeah, I love that the way you said it, Dan. I'd never heard that. But yeah, I agree. Like I, it's more semi-absentee typically, right? Unless you have a ton of capital where you, you can just hire an operating partner from day one great. But like, it's more of like an aspirational thing that can definitely happen. And like, I've spoken with franchisees who get there within a few years, or even this is an interesting trend that I've been seeing is rather than buy an emerging brand, there's people who are just finding old brands. You know, it's kind of like you have to work your tail off to break into it, but they're acquiring and buying out an existing franchise owner, assuming that the locations have been performing well. They have a lot of the staff that stays in place, some type of management hierarchy already there. And then now that they're in the network, and these are usually like younger folks, most of them seem to have come from like white collar backgrounds and they're they're leaving their jobs in corporate to do this. And so once they're into the system, they just network the hell out of the franchisees and they're always saying, hey, like I'm always looking to acquire stores. And then they get the offers before those deals even like hit the market on a biz buy sell or something like that. Because right, if you're a five guys owner, or there's a guy who did this with Midas franchises and now he owns 30 of them and he's like 33. He just does seller financing with all of them. And like, it's a really quick way to accelerate and get to scale versus doing new builds. So I've just thought that was really interesting is people kind of just finding these old brands where there's old franchisees who are looking to retire or sell out. And, you know, these younger guys are taking advantage and there's going to be some big multi-unit owners from that. Absolutely. One of the most impactful things that I heard, this was maybe about a year and a half ago. I was on some kind of webinar. It may have been franchise related. It may not have been, but, and I forget who was the speaker, but he mentioned something about growth through acquisition. That was something I understood. I know people buy existing businesses, but I never really understood that as like a strategy for really growing as like an individual. That made sense from like a big business perspective, mergers and acquisitions, but never thought of it as like an individual entrepreneur really seeking to grow through acquisition and doing it through franchising. I agree with you. I think that there's a lot of people that do that. I mean, I know people that are very successful franchisees currently that that's exactly what they did. Some of them would buy some of the underperforming franchise locations within their brand and turn them around. They have almost a checklist of exactly how to turn it around. And they don't all become winners and gold mines necessarily, but they can turn it around and make it a profitable investment. And so I do think that that is absolutely a trend we'll continue to see. What I am curious about though, Wolf, is what other trends are you seeing other than people growing through acquisition and franchise resales? Are there any other big trends you're seeing within the industry? As far as like buying strategies, not necessarily. I mean, I'd say, yeah, there's still the people who are who are buying into emerging brands, right? And securing massive territories. It's a riskier play, but like that's always right. I mean, if you want to be a multi-unit owner, those are your options, right? Is you have to be the builder or you be the acquirer, like we just talked about. But I mean, as far as industries go on the franchisor side, 
I'm starting to see a lot of crumble competitors pop up, which, you know, I think is interesting because based on Twitter, Twitter's a bubble. So I know it doesn't speak for like all of society, but the feedback on crumble is, oh, it's a phase. They're never going to last, yada, yada, yada. My pushback has been, you know, people say it's like frozen yogurt and cupcake franchises. They're going to die eventually. My thing has been crumble, like as of last year, right? Based on like 115 franchisees, I think in their FTD, their average unit volume was 1.6 million average net profit, or I think they say net income, which honestly, I'm fine with that term. I think that's pretty standard accounting term. It's like 357K, which is ridiculous cash flow based off the investment of like tops out at 690K. So um, beyond the fact that I don't think like none of those frozen yogurt or cupcake franchises ever were doing that from a unit economic perspective. Crumble also has like almost 8 million total followers across all their social media channels. Like they're doing things that are unheard of. And like their app has like 2 million daily active users, which is like pretty ridiculous. And like even people on tech Twitter who are in the VC world, like investing in like legitimate tech startups are like, how is this cookie franchise have more daily active users than like my investments? Like what's going on here? I think Crumble's legit, but it will just be interesting to watch as other cookie franchises. Like I've seen it, like they're just like, oh, Crumble did it. Why can't we? But like the problem is then the market gets really saturated. And if there's cookie franchises on every corner, like people don't need that many cookies in their life. I beg to differ. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love my cookies as well. But you know what I mean? Like it's just going to be interesting to see like, I think naturally Crumble's market is just going to drop based on the fact that a lot of other options are about to exist. But like in 10 years, what's it going to look like? So yeah, that's something I'll be watching over the next few years for sure. We're having Bennett Maxwell. He's the founder and CEO of Dirty Dough. So he's going to be coming on, I think, in about a week or so, actually. So it'll be interesting to hear what his perspective is. They just got sued too. I know. So there's that whole big cookie wars thing going on, right? Uh, Nice. This will be good, man. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm curious what his perspective is. Yeah, for sure. That was interesting. I think that lawsuit was about like, Crumble was suing not over like branding, but like how their concept operates, which to me, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm probably missing something. But like any of us can open up a cookie shop. There's nothing proprietary about baking cookies and selling them to the public. Unless I'm missing something, like, I don't know, maybe they had like a former worker at Dirty Dough used to work for Crumble or something like that. It's so interesting you say this. They leave out the special sauce that is important, right? So, well, we're the next Orange Theory, but they're missing the three or four components about Orange Theory that really made it special. Or, you know, hey, I'm going to go start a content business like yours, but leaving out that I don't know how to command a Twitter audience the way you do. Or as a franchise consultant, the way I know how to generate leads, like these are little details that make all the difference. I remember I started off as a business broker and I heard the firm I started with, there was a guy making a million dollars a year in Florida. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to be a business broker. I'm going to make a million dollars a year. And he's not any better than me and I can do it. And then as I went through the process and I started working there, I learned that, well, in Florida, there's co-brokering, right? So if you're a business broker, you list the business and other brokers send you their buyers. It's like, all you have to do is list the business and buyers just come. Every other state, especially New Jersey, where I was at the time, does not do any co-broker. So all of a sudden you have to find all your buyers. This is a very small distinction. It makes a hell of a difference in making a million dollars a year versus a couple hundred. And so I just think it's the same thing with any brand. When someone says, well, we're the next XYZ, they're leaving out that special ingredient that they're probably missing that they don't have. Yeah, completely agree. I mean, there's a big difference between like being able to bake cookies and being able to run 
a national brand that sells cookies with locations all over the country. Cookies are just step one, right? I mean, you got retail operations, you got marketing, you got the social media, organic growth that they've had. You've got the branding, which like they have those pink boxes. And I'm pretty sure they designed those boxes themselves, meaning like the size of them. Like they answered some competition and like literally the invention was the box because like the cookies fit perfectly in every box, whether you're buying them like a one, a four pack, a six pack or a 12 pack so that it's perfectly aligned regardless. So yeah, there's so many little details that go into any business, right? Mine included on Twitter, same as you guys, what you're doing, right? So it's never as easy as it looks. But at the same time, we have seen it in franchising where just certain industries become oversaturated and the strongest will survive. But I do think it will just take away some market share by the nature of them existing. Got my sweet tooth. (laughs) (laughs) Talking so much about cookies, Dan's like, I got to get some chocolate. (laughs) I agree though. I think that you always have like that market leader that comes in, takes over the space. They're massive. They prove the concept. There's a lot of success financially and otherwise. And then there's people that want to come into that industry because it's been proven. Are there any other industries right now that you see that happening with? A quick example for us is, you know, there's Ellie Mental Health. I mean, they've just blown up, it seems, and they're starting to finally open them up. Curious if you see any other trends like that or other industries. I actually think boutique fitness is pretty oversaturated too. So like they're further ahead in the curve, right? You know, you have your own theories and F45s, which are kind of more general hit style group workouts. But, you know, now Exponential has like brands like Row House that all you can do there is a rowing workout. Then they have Stride. All you can do there is a treadmill-based workout. And there's others like that that are owned by Exponential. Those are just the first ones that top popped in my head. But there's just so many different ones coming out. And like, obviously, like, I don't think every state can't support every single one of these concepts, you know, so someone's going to win. And I used to like love the idea of a row house like a year and a half ago, but as I've just gotten deeper and deeper to the weeds of the franchise world and see all these boutique fitness ones, I don't know. Like, I would rather be more broad-based, I guess. I just feel like fitness is way more trendy, right, than other areas where like I knock on food sometimes because it's usually a more expensive build-out and the margins are there. But bottom line is Americans love to eat and that's not going to change. So if you have a food concept that's been around for a while, like Wingstop or something like that, I mean, I'm far less worried about that having an issue in 10 years versus like, honestly, candidly, even in Orange Theory, like it's still only 10 years old. It's really a young business in the grand scheme of things. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch where, you know, the boutique fitness franchises go. You know, I think the big box ones like a Planet Fitness or, you know, I mean, obviously a brand of that stature is very difficult to break into. But yeah, I think boutique fitness as a whole, pretty crowded space. Yeah, I think food gets an unfair rep because again, like you said, expensive build out, larger initial investment, typically very capital intensive to scale. But like you said, the need is there and there's so much variety you can have within the food space. So many different types of cuisines, ways that it's served to the customer, whether it's quick service or it's more of a sit down type restaurant. So I think there's something to be said there. No, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm also, honestly, I'm like interested in a few areas where I'd love to see a franchise pop up. The greatest thing about the franchise model is just how quickly you can get to scale. Where I'm going with this is like, I've been watching the pickleball space and like it's exploding. Everyone loves pickleball. 
And I actually think it's legit. Like it's not just a fad as I've like come to learn more about the sport. So to me, that's like something where it's like, okay, like that's a retail business. If you're building pickleball facilities, like why can't that be a franchise? So things like that, that's like the stuff that excites me and what I look for. And maybe down the road, I'll be the one to like actually try to build a concept and franchise it, but you know, not for the foreseeable future. But you know, I like to keep my eyes peeled for things like that and see what franchises could be coming out to kind of capitalize on those trends. I like that. I would like a pickleball facility near us that you could just go to. Yeah. Is there one in Manhattan? I don't know. I think there's one in Brooklyn. I mean, Manhattan, brutal real estate. I don't even know. It would probably be a one-court facility, if anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do people get in touch with you? They're listening. They want to talk to you more. How do they get in touch? Uh, yeah, I'd say Twitter's honestly the best spot. I'm at Franchise Wolf there. Also on LinkedIn, the Wolf of Franchises, we have a page. Yeah, I'm just starting to post there. So please follow me there. <laughs> Could use the help. <laughs> so yeah, I'd say those are the best spots. And then I have a website, wolfoffranchises.com, that just houses everything from the newsletter to the podcast, Franchise Empires. So yeah, wherever people want to reach out, feel free. All right. Well, thanks everyone for hopping on. Wolf, thanks for coming on and sharing your insight. Really appreciate it. Everyone give them a follow. I follow the newsletter. It's fantastic. And subscribe, leave a review, share with friends. We appreciate the support. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com. 